Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah. He is with us till the end. What a wonderful truth that we can trust. I'm going to continue our study this morning in the book of Ephesians. As you are probably aware, we've made our way thus far to Ephesians chapter 2. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we come to you now thanking you for this morning, thanking you for all that, we're, that you are accomplishing amongst us here. We thank you that you are one to be trusted, that you are good. As it says in your scripture, you are love. Lord, you are one that we can, you are faithful, one that we can trust. We thank you and praise you this morning. We ask that this time of preaching would be clear, that your gospel would be proclaimed so that those who know you would be encouraged and those who do not would be convicted by it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I want you to know that today, we've mentioned it a few times, today is a very special day in the life of our church. In Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, Peter took his stand and preached to the men of Judea and those in Jerusalem, and he explained the word of God to them. And at the end of his sermon, many came to know the Lord and were baptized. In a few hours, we're going to go to the Chang home, and we're going to eat together, and we're going to hear two amazing testimonies. And we're going to see these two ladies, two ladies baptized. What a wonderful miracle of salvation. And prior to that, we're going to, as Jonathan mentioned, we're going to spend time observing the Lord's table. We're going to take the time uh, to reflect upon the Lord's death, to proclaim the Lord's death here together. Just think, we have now sung together, we have prayed together, we have listened to the Scriptures being read together, and now we're going to hear the Word of God explained together. And then we're going to hear or observe communion. We're going to hear the testimonies of our Lord's grace and mercy, and we're going to witness two baptisms, and amidst all that, we get to eat together. That should bring joy to you, not just the eating part. That's good, though. Now, we just need to throw in a wedding, a funeral, and a few births, and then we'd have everything covered that the New Testament church does. But all kidding aside, I hope that you see and recognize the special nature of this day. Uh, and, and will join us for all these events. Well, let me give you, uh, let me, the title of my sermon today is Trophies of Grace, Part 3. We're preaching through, we're studying through uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Let me read uh, verses 1 through 10 for context. We're specifically in verses 4 through 7 today. Uh, Paul writes, the Apostle Paul writes, and you were dead in your trespasses, that is, and sins, 
in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In his book, Holiness by Grace, Brian Chappell tells a gripping story about his wife and kids. Several years ago, uh, his wife Kathy and a friend took their kids to the St. Louis Zoo, a big cat country, a, a lion exhibit or a, or a big cat exhibit, had just opened, uh, which took the, the lions and tigers out of their cages and allowed them to roam in large enclosures. Visitors could observe the cats by walking on elevated skyways above the habitats. As his wife and her friend took the children up one of the skyway ramps, a blanket got tangled in a stroller wheel. wheel. Kathy then does, did what most mothers would do. She knelt down and she uh, began to untangle the wheel and while their preschool boys went on ahead of them. To her horror, when she looked up, she discovered that the boys had walked through a small gap in the fencing and had climbed up on some of the rocks some 20 or 25 feet from the lion pen. Pointing to the lions below, they called back to their mother and said, Hey, Mom, we can see them. They had no concept of how much danger they were in. What could she do? If she screamed, they might, she might startle the boys who were perched precariously above the lions. And the gap in the fence was much too small for her to get through. So what she did is she knelt and she spread out her arms and said, Boys, come get a hug from Mom. And they came running. Came running for the love, for the love that saved them from a danger greater than they could ever have perceived. With similar love, God shows His rich mercy towards us as He rescues us from His own wrath for sin. Just like those boys before God set His, just like those boys before God set His love upon us, we were dead in our sins and trespasses, and we needed to be rescued by God in His rich mercy and by His great love. Steve Lawson says this. We will never know how great God's love is until we first see how great our sin is. We'll never know what God has saved us from until we know how great our sin is. We'll never understand His great love until we see this. This is the reason Paul starts with chapter 2 with the description of our utter, utter sin sinfulness. He he begins by telling us in chapter 2, and we began to see this two weeks ago, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. You see, we were, prior to Christ, we were in complete rebellion against our Creator. 
as unbelievers, we lived according to the world standards. We conducted ourselves in harmony with the spirit of this age. We were a part of the age, this age, and we were alienated from God because the age itself is alienated from God. In our current age, the world system is dominated by Satan and his demonic forces. You see, Satan dominates our current world, and he has entrapped man into succumbing to our world's values. And before you were a Christian, you were locked into this deadly path. You were locked in. There was nothing you could do about it. But you can't say, though, that you weren't responsible for your sin. You weren't responsible for your own sinful actions because you willfully sinned and you willfully rebelled against a holy God. You see, you lived, according to verse 3, you lived according to the, the lust of your flesh and you indulged in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And you faced God's wrath because you were a sinner by nature and because you willfully sinned against God's holiness. Now, there have been some, there's been some discussion in and around our church about the nature of man's will. And I'm thankful that we're willing to discuss these things with a heart to know the truth. The question is whether or not man has free will. Now, I've said from this pulpit that man can make choices. You can decide to get up, for instance, and go to the bathroom right now. You can go do that. But man's will, the will of man, is not truly free. The natural man, the natural man is enslaved to sin. Our choices are governed by our sin nature, and they are limited by God's decree. We all understand, let me just say this, we all actually understand that man's will is not truly free. Can you imagine for a moment, just do a little thought process here, can you imagine for a moment the chaos of a world where all of us could do exactly as we please? Think about that. Think about the chaotic nature of a world where none of us are limited. You see, we are all limited. And if you don't believe me, then just go do anything you please for the next 24 hours and then come back and let me know how that works out for you. It won't work out very well. You see, none of us are free to completely live according to our fleshly desires. For instance, you're not free to break the law without losing any current freedom that you have or you enjoy, right? You see, our freedom is limited by the goodness of God, even if you don't fully realize it. So we chafe when someone says that we don't have free will. You see, God is the only one, is the only being who is all-powerful. And yet, he is limited by his own goodness. Think about that. Think about that. That he is a good God and he is limited by his own goodness. You see, the only way that man can truly become free is by becoming more like the Lord Jesus. That makes sense to you? As we become more like Christ... We become freer because our desires become, or His desires become our desires. His goodness becomes our goodness. His love becomes the love that we possess. Therefore, Paul says in Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. 
The paradox is that He sets us free by making us a slave of His love. In Romans 6.22, Paul says this, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive the benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. So we go from bondage to sin and the law to bondage to Christ. Yet there couldn't be a more stark difference between the two taskmasters. One, our sin sin is a harsh taskmaster, right? The more we sink into our sinful patterns, the more enslaved we become. That's the great paradox of it, that the more we think that we're gaining freedom by doing what we want to do, the more entangled we become in it. How many of you have despaired as dear family and friends have sunk farther into their sin and become more and more entangled by it? I know I have. Absolute despair. Just a couple of years ago, a girl in South Carolina spent almost 48 hours snorting and injecting a concoction of tainted methamphetamine. She was standing in front of a church and she was hallucinating wildly and she actually... I almost hate to say it, she actually ripped her own eyes out and squished them in her hand. Beautiful young lady, just like some of you. She had spiraled into a cesspool of sin which enslaved her and drove her to do the unthinkable. Unthinkable. But you see, slavery slavery to Christ then is not the same. Christ loves us with a love that we could hardly fathom. And Paul proclaims in 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us. Beloved, you didn't have a completely free will when you were dead in your sins and trespasses. But He has set you free by His love. He has set you free in His grace. And now you are controlled by His love which is a wonderful taskmaster, because he's a good God. You faced his wrath until he intervened on your behalf and showed you his rich mercy. Just last week we studied the first part of verse 4, where Paul states that the, where, what are two of the greatest words in the Bible. But God. But God. God has intervened in your life because he is rich in mercy. He has seen us in our impossible predicament, and He has saved us according to His rich mercy. You see, God could have left all of mankind in our sin. He could have justly left us in our sin. He could have justly justly judged us. But He has saved some according to His rich mercy. He has chosen to show some this mercy and His love for the sake of His own glory. Last week we found that he chooses to show mercy towards some by saving them, and he chooses to judge others. Yet according to Paul, this does not indicate injustice with God. Those who are condemned will be rightly condemned for their sin. No injustice. They will stand before the righteous judge who will show justice toward those who are not found in Christ. Before his... Appointment as Supreme Court Justice, Horace Grave once presided over a case where a man was justly charged. 
through a technicality, Gray was obligated to release him. But as he addressed him, he said this. He said, I believe you are guilty and would wish to condemn you severely, but through a petty technicality, I am obliged to discharge you. And I wish you to remember that one day you will pass before a better and wiser judge when you will be dealt with according to justice and not according to man's law. You see, brothers and sisters, we will stand before a righteous and holy judge. A righteous and holy judge. And you will be dealt with according to his justice, and you will be convicted according to his righteous law. If you stand alone outside of Christ, then you will take upon yourself the full wrath of God for your sin. You will not be let off by some petty technicality. But if you are in Christ, then God's wrath for your sin has been poured out on Him. If you are in Christ, you can have confidence because God has changed your earthly and your eternal destiny, your earthly path and your eternal destiny from that wrath that you faced to reign. Reign on His throne with Him because of His great mercy. That, is, that was the first ex- explanation of why we can have confidence. We can have confidence that God has changed our path, our earthly path, and our eternal destiny because He has shown us rich mercy. Secondly, we can be confident because of His great love. Beloved, this fits with what I've been saying about being enslaved to Christ who loves us beyond all we can imagine. Look at the text. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, First, God's character has been been portrayed as being rich in mercy. The cause of this rich mercy towards us is His great love. And His great love for us is the basis for His grace that He's shown us. Beloved, what can we say about the love of God? First, Paul makes it clear that he's talking about God's, God's great love. This is a love that can only come from, come from a perfect God. As the Israelites stood ready to enter the promised land, Moses exclaimed, Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousand generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Deuteronomy 7, 9. We need to understand how revolutionary this is. How revolutionary it is to know that Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, the Lord God who created the heavens and the earth, is a covenant-keeping, merciful God, is a loving God. You see, in those days, most people feared the God. For Moses to say that the one true God is faithful and loving, that was altogether different. The psalmist declares this of him. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Again, he declares in, in, in Psalm eighty-six, fifteen. But you, O Lord, are merciful, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Beloved, we serve a, a good God. He is characterized by being good. He is the embodiment of goodness. Back in Ephesians, Paul uses the Greek word agape, 
twice in this verse. He uses the noun form of the word and the verb form of the word, and he intensifies the word, the, the word love by, by adding the word that we translate, translate great. You see, Paul can't intensify this word enough to describe what God has done for us in Christ. This agape love is a love that seeks the highest good for the one loved. This is the type of love that's given irrespective of merit and to those who are undeserving. So it goes perfectly. It fits perfectly with his, with his merciful nature. He's a, he's a God of that's, that's full of mercy. And he shows mercy and he shows this love to people who don't deserve it. We did nothing. Nothing to deserve it. J.I. Packer says this, God's love is an exercise of his goodness towards sinners who merit only condemnation. End quote. We, we merit only condemnation. Yet God has shown his goodness toward us by his great love. This goes back to our discussion of being controlled and enslaved by the love of Christ. You see, God wants our greatest good. He wants nothing but our greatest good. Then, if that is true, then we should gladly yield to His great love. You see, we didn't receive this love from Him based on our merit. We received it solely based on His character. The character of who He is. And according to the New Testament writers, love is one of God's attributes. 1 John 4, 8, the Apostle John says, the one who does, does not love does not know God, for God is love. In 4, 16, 1 John 4, 16, he says, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. You see, God is love. Therefore, Christ is the demonstration and the personification of that love. I say that Christ is the demonstration of God's love because he's modeled the love of God to us. In John 15, Jesus says, John 15, 9, Just as the Father has loved us, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in, may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So we see that, that Christ is modeled. He's a demonstration of God's love, and he's modeled that love to us. He's demonstrated what it means to be a God of love. And he calls us to love in the same way. He goes on in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. No doubt looking forward to the cross. No doubt looking forward to the supreme demonstration of God's love. You see, in verse 13, he's pointing out that the demonstration of God's love can be most vividly seen in what Christ has done for his people. And Christ laying down his life for us at the cross. 
Paul, the apostle, affirms this to be true in Romans 5, 5, 8. He says, but God, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, Christ has intervened on our behalf. Much more than five, Romans 5, 9, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We don't have to experience the wrath of God because of Christ's love for us. In Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, beloved, salvation is by love. As John MacArthur states, a little bit of a lengthy quote, God is love, and God's intrinsic essential attribute of love manifests itself to us in grace and mercy. Love is his motive, so he's rich in love, so he's rich in grace, so he's rich in mercy. And he reaches out to love those of us who are dead in sin. We are the vilest, sinful, godless, ungrateful, unworthy, unholy, destitute, degraded, depraved humans walking around, engulfed in sins, sins and trespasses, serving the prince of the power of a system of ideology that drowns us. And we are targets for God's wrath. It is to us, it is to those people, it is to us, that He comes and pours out His love. That's God. And it's amazing, you know, when we have sinned because we have sinned against His love. He has loved us all along. Man doesn't just break His laws. He sins against His love. End quote. Friends, here's the most amazing part of God's love. We can never be separated from Him. Once He sets His love upon us, we can never be separated from it. Listen to Paul, Paul in Romans 8.35, if you don't believe me. He says this, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, we, are, we for your sake are, are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced, this is what Paul says, this is Romans 8.38, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brethren, God's love is exactly where we want to be. There's great freedom there. There's great security there. 
Jerry Bridges says this. God's unfailing love for us is an objective fact affirmed over and over in the Scriptures. It is true whether we believe it or not. Our doubts do not, do not destroy God's love, nor our faith create it. It originates in the very nature of God who is love. And it flows to us through our union with His beloved Son. End quote. That quote really encapsulates it, right? But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. He didn't have to do it. He didn't have to. But He did because of His great love. He could have left us. He could have left us dead in our trespasses and sins. He could have left us in our sinfulness. He could have judged us for all of eternity and He would have been just to do so. Yet He poured out His love. This brings us to the third explanation of why you can be confident that God has changed your earthly path and eternal destiny from wrath to reign. You can be confident because of His infinite power. Look back at the text in Ephesians. Look at Ephesians 2.5. Even when you were dead in your transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. Stop there. What's happening here is Paul is circling back and reiterating the truth that he gave in in chapter 1. Namely, actually starting in chapter 2, namely, uh, 2.1-2, that we were dead in our our transgressions. He does so to reiterate and cement to to his readers that we were once dead and had no way of being made alive. The fact that we were completely dead and have been made alive in Christ demonstrates the power and surpassing greatness of the one who raised Christ from the dead. And if God has the power to raise His own Son from the dead to defeat death and sin, then He can raise a dead sinner from the dead. That's what he's, That's the truth from chapter 1, right? That was the demonstration of God's power from chapter 1. Remember verse 19, what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? He said, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. You see, He's raised His Son from the dead, defeating sin and death, and He can raise us from the dead, demonstrating His power, further demonstration of His power. And beloved, outside of raising Christ from the dead, there is nothing that demonstrates the power and sovereignty of God more than making a sinner alive together with Christ. This afternoon we'll be blessed, as we've mentioned, we'll be blessed to to hear testimonies of, of two women who were spiritually dead sinners who have been made alive in Christ. And I promise you, that if you're there, you will witness the power of Christ in making these two alive. We will see demonstrated what God can and does do in the lives of His people. There's nothing, nothing, nothing more amazing 
on this earth than seeing people miraculously saved out of the most difficult of circumstances. There's nothing more powerful than witnessing the power of God working in the lives of those who were formerly dead in their trespasses and sins. And friends, if you know Christ, it's happened to you. It's happened to you. You've been made alive together with Him as a demonstration of His power. You have been raised from the spiritual grave, and while you face, still face physical death, that will only usher in a fullness of your, the fullness of your life in Christ. What an amazing truth. That we, we still face physical death, beloved, but that will only usher in the fullness of our life with Christ. And God does all this according to His power. Again, Jerry Bridges says this. God is completely sovereign. God is infinite in wisdom. God is perfect in love. God in His love always wills what is best for us. In His wisdom, He always knows what is best. And in His sovereignty, He has the power to bring it about. In this case, He has the power to make us alive in Christ. As Paul contemplates this great truth, he can't seem to contain himself. He interjects a parenthetical statement here. He says, for by grace you have been saved. This truth will be repeated in verse 8. But this truth assures the reader that salvation is solely based on the grace of God. God's response to our plight is one of mercy. The motive for His compassion is His great love for which He loved us. And the basis for this action is His grace. His unmerited and undeserved favor. You see, every sinner who's ever lived deserves His wrath, yet God has chosen to save some by His grace. His grace, which is His favor, which provides salvation for sinners through the death of His Son, and it enables us to live acceptably before Him. A little bit of a nerd moment. The verb translated have been saved is a, is a perfect passive verb. It's what grammarians call the divine passive. The divine passive. The work of salvation. And what Paul is saying here is that the work of salvation is the work of God alone. You see, you added nothing to salvation. You brought nothing to the altar of your salvation except for your sin. We sing the hymn, Jesus Paid It All. Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And when before the throne I stand in Him complete, Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. Beloved, Jesus has truly paid it all. He has done everything. Again, Paul uses the perfect tense, which we've discussed before. Tense shows that this 
past action, your salvation has abiding results to the present. In other words, if you were saved by Jesus in the past, then you are saved today and you will be saved tomorrow. You will be saved tomorrow and the next day. If He has truly saved you, if He's truly saved you, then you will be saved all the way to eternity. And as we saw in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If you have been truly saved, then you can be confident that He'll keep you to the end. Howard Horner says this, God by His grace initially saves, but by that same grace He keeps believers safe and saved from His wrath and from sin's grip of death from which they are delivered. End quote. It's powerful. It's powerful. Even in the grammar. Even in the grammar. I mean, it's a powerful truth, but the grammar demonstrates how powerful it is. What God has done to us, or for us. Here's the most amazing part of the whole thing. God demonstrates His power by making us alive together with Him and by raising us up with Him and seating us up, or seating us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Beloved, that's Ephesians 2, 6. Beloved, this is a, the clear demonstration of the power and greatness of God. He takes those who were His enemies and He raises them up and He seats them in the heavenly, heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Make no mistake, you were his enemy. It's a question, well, the question is, why does he do all this? Why does he do all this? This question leads us to the last explanation of why you as a Christian can be confident that God has changed your earthly path and eternal destiny from wrath to reign. You can be confident because of God's overwhelming glory. Look at verse 7. Why did he do it? So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, beloved, I named this sermon, these sermons trophies of grace. Beloved, if you are in Christ, you are a trophy of grace. In, in the coming ages, all the way to eternity, he will keep us by his grace. He will continually show his kindness toward us. And we will come to fully understand all that God has done for us when He brings all things to fruition. When we're dwelling with Him for eternity. Right now, in this present age, we don't fully appreciate all that God has accomplished. We're limited by our, we're limited in our sight by our sin and human frailty. But in the future, we'll come to see Him clearly. We will come to understand the surpassing riches of His grace, which He shows toward us. We'll fully grasp His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And when we do, we will fully recognize the glory of His redemptive plan. You see, in this age, we've only begun to see that glory, right? In the age to come, we'll more fully more fully see his glory you see before we turned to christ our sight was fully veiled if you're here today and you don't know christ all of this is doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense to you because your sight is fully veiled but here's the truth 
Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3.16. He says this, But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. The veil is taken away. And he goes on to say, Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. He takes that veil away, and he sets us free. When Christ saves us, there's liberty. He makes us free in Christ. He frees us from sin and condemnation. He goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. You see, when God saves us, we begin to behold His glory. We begin to see all that Christ has accomplished for us. And we begin to be transformed into the same image. Into the image of Christ. And in the ages to come, we'll fully see the riches of His glorious grace. We'll see everything. In the meantime, we experience God's love here on earth, which is the closest thing to heaven we'll experience before we die. Before we die. J.I. Packer says this, to know God's love is indeed heaven on earth. End quote. Now in a few minutes, we're going to observe the Lord's, the Lord's table. Before we do, I want to speak to those of you who do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Some of you believe that you don't need, to be God, to, to, you don't need God to be saved. You believe that you're a good person. But I want to I warn you of something if you are here today and you believe that. I want to warn you that you have not accounted for the holiness of God. You may be a good person according to your own standard, according to the world's standard, according to the system of this world, but you have not accounted for the holiness of God. You see... God is holy, and according to the the Bible, He can't even look upon sin with favor. The Apostle John says this in 1 John 1.5, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. Do you realize that there can't be any darkness in God because He is fully good? And if there were any darkness in God, He would break forth upon you. Because He's all-powerful. The Apostle Paul says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, you can't do enough good works to gain favor with Him. All of your righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, according to the prophet Isaiah. You might be saying, that's not fair. How can God judge me like that? Isaiah the prophet also says, or the Lord through the Isaiah the prophet says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. You will stand before a holy God. You will be judged according to His righteousness. Don't make the mistake of thinking that you are good enough 
Now, some of you may actually be thinking that God cannot save someone as bad as you. But believe me, He will save you if you ask. The Bible says in Romans 10.9 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, Romans 10.11, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. You will not be disappointed if you believe in your heart that He died on the cross for your sins and that God raised Him from the dead. You won't be disappointed. If you're here today, I hope that you'll consider. I hope you'll consider. If you don't know Him, consider these things. Consider your, your sin before a holy God. This morning we were talking about our sin. and, and the, You know, you, you men buy t-shirts, right? You go under your shirt. They get, they get washed over time. And then you buy another set of t-shirts. And you see that, that white, bright white t-shirt versus the one you thought was still white. You see how that, that shines forth? The, the white versus the one that's a little dingy. You are that dingy t-shirt. You need Christ to, to cleanse you. Every first Sunday we celebrate communion. In doing so, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. This observant was give, observance was given to us by the Lord Himself. In 1 Corinthians 11.23, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. In other words, this was direct revelation given to Paul by our Lord. And it's important for us to understand because in these instructions, Paul, or Jesus instructed Paul that they should continue to observe this communion, the Lord's table, until He returns. And the reason we do so is because we're proclaiming the Lord's death. Therefore, here at Grace Bible Church, we observe the Lord's table on a monthly basis. Now, in just a few minutes, we're going to pass out the elements. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to give you a few reminders, and then we'll pass those out. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time of reflecting upon your truth. I pray that Lord, for those who know you, that they be, they be encouraged to know what you have done for them. In Christ, that you have made them pure, white as snow, I pray for those who don't know you today. They would consider. They would consider how holy you are. That you have, in your love and rich mercy, have provided a way. A way that we may be able to come to you. 
clearly. Clearly, Lord, you said that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. You said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that those who are perishing would scoff. God came in human flesh. God died on a cross. Doesn't make sense. Yet you've also said it's eternal life for those who believe. For those who understand that you poured your wrath out on your son so that we might not have to take your wrath. Father, I pray today that we would consider these things. That we would consider what you have done. That in your love and in your rich mercy, you have provided a way that we might be reconciled to you. We thank you this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Let me give you a few reminders before.